Roman engineering was bigger and better than everything that came before it. To this day, their art and architecture make Rome live up to its nickname as the Eternal City. Even after Rome fell, it was such a strong and smart culture that it passed on to the next generations. The Romans are alive amongst us because of what they blessed us in so many different fields. Coming up, we take a close look at what inspires us about Rome and and what we can discover about the civilizations of ancient Greece and Egypt. The people of the past are exactly the same as us in terms of mental capacity. We're not, you know, we're not talking about sort of sloping browed grunty people. We'll also hear about efforts to preserve heritage sites around the world for the generations that follow us. This is a wonderful opportunity for us to learn and rehabilitate things that are already there so that we can adapt to a more challenging future. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. They're not just marble statues from the dusty past. When you know how to look an antiquity in the eye, you might be able to get a glimpse of the world they inhabited. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, we're zooming in on the art you'll find in Rome that we feature on my new public TV series. And we take a close look at ancient Greece and Egypt, too. Let's start the hour looking at sites that might not make it as antiquities given the threats they face today from climate change issues. All across the globe, a growing number of architectural and cultural sites are being threatened by the effects of climate change. Sites from a 500-year-old castle on the south coast of England to the historic water fountains of Kathmandu in Nepal have recently been added to the World Monuments Fund 2022 Watch. This is a list they issue every two years with a global call to action to address the urgent challenges they represent. Joining us from New York to talk about these sites and the efforts to preserve them is Jonathan Bell. He's the Vice President of Programs for the World Monuments Fund. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here. This is so exciting that there's an organization designed to raise awareness of cultural and and heritage sites around the planet, regardless if they're in a wealthy country or in a poor country, that really deserve a look. I want to talk about some specific sites on the list this year that relate to climate change. But before we do that, can you just give us a, a quick definition of what is the World Monuments Fund and what's your mission? Well, we are an organization that was founded in 1965. And what we basically do is protect the world's most treasured places. So these are historic places, uh, archaeological sites, you know, really any place that a community holds dear and holds it as part of their identity. And so that's really the focus of our work. And every two years you bring out a list and there's different um, challenges. There's, you know, helping develop tourism in a smart way. There's helping areas that have had a crisis, uh, a civil war or or some natural disaster rebuild. There's places that just are underrepresented and not appreciated. And there's places dealing with climate change. People can go to your website. That's WMF.org, WMF for World Monuments Fund, to learn about the, the big list. But what I'd like to talk about with you today, Jonathan, is the climate change-related sites on your 2022 watch. Uh, There's a handful of these sites, and as we travel, wherever we travel, we can imagine rising sea levels, desertification, uh, violent weather, uh, problems caused by climate change are threatening local economies, and they're also threatening precious, priceless, really, heritage sites. Let's talk about a few of these. Uh, The Maldive Islands, I think, is the lowest uh, country in the world that is threatening to be overwhelmed by a rising sea. 
what do we have in the Maldives that we're going to lose from a heritage point of view, and, and what's the World Monuments Fund doing about it? This year, as we put out our call for the watch, I just wanted to say that one of the things we really wanted to do was make sure that we use the work we do to leverage um, better solutions to some of the global challenges that we all face. And of course, climate change was the first thing that we, we saw and thought of and thought we could really do something with. So in Maldives, we have a cemetery. It's the oldest and largest cemetery in the Maldives. There are about 1,500 or more grave sites, plus four mosques and some other structures. And what's really amazing about it is not only the age and, and the importance to Maldivian culture, but they use a really unique construction technique. Um, this is dry coral stone. So they've cut coral, you know, farmed it from the ocean, dried it, and then cut it. And they have these incredible interlocking, you know, architectural technique. Uh, it's really fascinating and also really uh, beautifully decorated uh, mm. with decorative carvings and whatnot. Mm. And the challenge there is that this cemetery sits right on the coast, right on the water. And as you mentioned, Rick, um, Maldives is the lowest lying country in the world. So the prediction is that in 70 years, most, if not all of the country will be under, underwater. And of course, this site will be one of the first places to go. Wow. Now, I, I got to ask, in a case like this, is this some educated and economic elite from New York City that says, oh, this is a tragedy, let's get this fixed? Or is this a grassroots initiative from the people who live there that are calling for help and that the World Monuments Fund then goes, oh, this makes sense, let's put it on our list? It's, it's definitely the latter. Um, the wonderful thing about the way our watch process works is that we put out a call for nominations and that's open to anyone, any individual, any government, any professional organization. And this is actually coming from uh, an individual who uh, lives in, who is Maldivian, lives in Maldives, and said, this is a place that's really important to us. So hmm. help us save it. Oh, what an important um, connection, a, a marriage between different parts of the world to recognize uh, dimensions of different cultures that are really important to all of us. Uh, you also have a castle in the south coast of England. It's called the Hearst Castle, not to be confused with this Hearst Castle in California. But this is a case study, I would think, in saving a historic and heritage site from climate change. Tell us a little bit about the Hearst Castle in England. Sure. So Hearst Castle was built by uh, the famous Henry VIII as a defensive structure. And it's a really fascinating structure because it kind of, you know, snakes along the coastline. Uh, the building itself is right there up against the water and follows the coast. And, you know, just in the past few years, there have been a few incidents where parts of the underlying structure have been taken out to sea because of uh, storms and rising storm surge. So we really saw this as a great opportunity to, uh, again, highlight the challenges of climate change, not only in relation to heritage, but in relation to all of us, but then also use it as a, a kind of classroom where we could study and monitor and share lessons learned and perhaps some of the challenges that we really can't find solutions to and share that information with, with other sites around the world. Jonathan, it's so exciting what you're doing. By the way, we're talking with Jonathan Bell, and he is the Vice President of Programs at the World Monuments Fund. And they're working very hard to help identify and, and raise awareness of, of precious heritage and cultural sites all over the planet as, as we go forward and, and don't lose these, once they're lost, they're lost sites. I suppose one thing we can all have a better appreciation of is the struggle in Bangladesh as salt water is flooding, um, delta areas and so on. There's a fascinating mosque city. Tell us about that. 
Sure. This is the mosque city of Bagarhat. Um, it's a collection of incredible structures, uh, almost all of them mosques, that date back to the 15th century. Though they're a ways away from the coast because of the way the you know all of those kind of wetlands uh, in southern Bangladesh work, they have a lot of impact from sea level rise. And what's really interesting is also it's some of the things that local community is doing. Um, they have been raising shrimp lately, and so that means they need more water in the area and a lot more salt. And so hmm. this rising water table is causing a lot of challenges, and salt is one of the things we never want in buildings because it basically gets in there and starts damaging all of the building materials. So it's a big challenge that's both climate change, which we know is caused by people, but there's a more direct link of an activity, an economic activity that people are doing in the area that's also causing challenges. By the way, is that transition from growing rice to raising shrimp, is that uh, a way to cope with climate change? Uh, well, you know, in this case, I, I wouldn't necessarily say so. One of the reasons that so many members of the community have adopted shrimp farming is because it's more lucrative. Hmm. So that's, you know, and that's that the reality sense. of it. Jonathan Bell is joining us on Travel with Rick Steves from the World Monuments Fund as we consider heritage sites the world risks losing with the increasing impacts of climate change. You'll find the full list of sites included on their biannual watch at WMF.org. There's another site you're working on in Peru, which is a historic water system that's under threat. Yes. And, you know, this is a, an incredible uh, site and, you know, all the sites are incredible. But this is yet kind of another example of this interaction between these wonderful historic places and climate change. Here is really an opportunity for us to learn from the past because this is a huge landscape up in the Andes that has a thousand-year-old water system in place. Uh, and this is a system of channels and dams and retention basins and so forth that, that spans uh, a number of, of square miles. And what people have been learning is that they can start to rehabilitate these systems and there's more reliable water that is across the entire landscape, even down to the cities. So this is a wonderful opportunity for us to learn and rehabilitate things that are already there so that we can adapt to a more challenging future. Wow, that's kind of a twofer then. You're, you're preserving something that has a historical value, and you're also revitalizing something that for a thousand years has brought clean water to the community. Absolutely, huh. and, it's, and it's water that they use for everything. It has been used for everything from livestock to grass and personal use, and so it's really, uh, it is really a win-win situation. You know, the World Monuments Fund has been at it now for decades, it's an important, but it's a small uh, organization compared to the immense challenges that you're addressing. Um, but when we go to your website at uh, wmf.org, we can be inspired by some of your accomplishments. Let's wrap up our discussion, Jonathan, just by a, a single example of something that your organization has accomplished in the last decade or so that you are proud of and that you'd expect more similar triumphs in the future. Well, you know, not necessarily related to climate change, but uh, one could make a case for it. Something we're very proud of is Bears Ears National Monument. And I don't intend to take all the credit for that uh, on behalf of World Monuments Fund, but we included Bears Ears National Monument, that huge space in Utah that is sacred to so many Native peoples uh, within the United States and even Canada. Uh, we included that on our 2020 watch. And what is uh, the name because... of that again? Bears Ears Bears National Ears. Monument. 
you will probably remember that um, it was President Obama during his administration that created the National Monument as a huge, huge expanse of land because it was sacred to so many uh, Native peoples. And unfortunately, during the Trump administration, um, that was cut back quite substantially. But we feel in part with our advocacy and some of the work we're doing on the ground with our incredible local partners, uh, President Biden restored this landscape, restored the full size of the National Monument, actually added a little bit more. So this landscape is again protected and there's really great opportunity to work more closely with tribal leaders and Native peoples for the future of this huge and incredible space. Jonathan Bell, thank you so much for your work. Um, the more I learn about the World Monuments Fund, the more I am inspired by it. And I just hope and pray that your list for 2022 is a whole list of success stories next time we check back in with you. Thank you so much, Rick. Jonathan Bell tells us how the historic water fountains of Nepal's Kathmandu Valley are being disturbed by development and climate change. It's in an extra to today's interview, and you can hear that at ricksteves.com radio. Up next, we explore what the ancient world has to say to us in the art and architecture of ancient Rome, as well as Greece and Egypt. Later in the hour, we'll get a taste of the traditional fado music of Portugal. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Amir Talibetirovic. I'm uh, coming from Sarajevo, capital of Bosnia, where I work as a local guide and as a journalist. We have many proverbs, like the rest of the Balkans. And for this time, I will use uh, one um, journalist one. We will say, like, Sloboda govora je zajamčena, ali ne sloboda poslije govora. Uh, there is a guarantee for the freedom of speech, but uh, not the freedom after the speech. Sloboda govora je zajamčena, ali ne i sloboda nakon govora. How big a deal is Rome in the sweep of things? <laughs> well, if you were to write a six-part series telling the story of Europe's art, an entire chapter could be devoted to the story of Rome's art. In fact, we just did finish a six-part miniseries for public television. It's called Rick Steves' Art of Europe. The series is airing all across the United States on public television right now, and there are six separate hours in the series. Stone Age to Ancient Greece, Ancient Rome, Middle Ages, Renaissance, Baroque, and finally, the last hour is the Romantic Age through the Modern Age. And the second hour is dedicated entirely to Rome and its art. To consider the impact of ancient Rome on the story of Europe's art, I'm joined in our radio studio now by Jean Openshaw. Jean is the lead writer of the series. And on the phone from the Eternal City itself, our favorite local guide for all things Roman, Francesca Caruso. Hey, Jean, thanks for joining us. Ciao. Ciao. That's right, because we've got Francesca calling in. And Francesca, ciao. How are you doing in Rome? Ciao, Rick. Ciao, Jean. I'm doing wonderfully. Thank you. I'm very happy to be with you. Francesca and Jean, we've been working on this show for about two years, and finally, it's airing around the country thanks to public broadcasting. And Francesca, whenever I do something in Rome, you're my go-to guide. And you were with us there as we were filming, and I remember we were walking together through down the Via Sacra, the sacred way, the main street of ancient Rome. The camera was rolling, and, and Simon just said, Simon, our producer, 
he just said, let Francesca talk, you know, because normally I have, I have an agenda of what I want people to say. And I thought, that's a brilliant idea. Francesca knows what to say. And you <laughs> knew you had a massive audience. What did you want to share with our audience as, as you were jumping in and being a guest host on our Roman Art History Hour? Well, I, I think what I would, would have liked and what I wanted to do was give a living sense of uh, of ancient Rome and Roman art, I think we're used to thinking of the of Roman art as these uh, these statues locked up in museums. And I think what we were trying to do was, in a sense, set them free and reimagine them in the original context in which they lived in the city where they were experienced by by the people. I've got this visual or this imagination of Via Sacra on a parade day, and to be standing there as uh, just in the crowds being mesmerized and awe-stricken by what was parading in front of me. What is a moment that might be very memorable for an average Roman citizen right there on the main street in the Forum? Well, the parade is an excellent example. I mean, think of the fact that these people didn't have newspapers or television, so when they saw the general come back from these victories abroad with the prisoners in chains and wagons full of art and paintings that actually represented uh, the battlefield, it would have been like seeing the world that Rome had conquered, but the world outside of Rome uh, just appear in front of their eyes. Imagine seeing all these treasures, people from far lands with faces they'd never seen. It must have been incredibly exciting, and also the sounds, the cheering, the trumpets, flower petals thrown in the emperor's path. I think it must have been very powerful visually, especially in the context, in the architectural context of the Roman Forum. Oh, yeah. Hey, Jean, you and I have traveled together since we were kids. For me, I always say my best trip ever was the, the trip you and I took when you were 17 and I was 18, right after graduation from high school. Right. I remember kind of a very strangely mature and romantic and beautiful, quiet moment you and I shared on a bluff overlooking the Forum when we were teenagers. Ah, uh, yes. Do you remember that? I do remember it. The sun was setting, if I recall. Um, yeah. Well, oh, well, it, was a, it was a real magic moment, and we were just kids. It was, I think we were having a picnic, like we usually did, because we were dead broke. <laughs> and all we had money for was art, things like the, uh, going into the Forum. Yeah. And, yeah, we were sitting there eating our... Our bread and cheese, our marble hard rolls and and coke. In and fact, my my the <laughs> upper part of my mouth, the roof of my mouth, was always roughed up and and sore because all we did was eat crusty bread with cheese, <laughs> <laughs> like Roman ruins. <laughs> and, but but even as a kid, I remember this notion of the Roman Forum was the cow field. And it was half covered up with the silt of the centuries. Nobody had a sense of history or the value of art history or anything like that in most of history because they were just trying to survive. And you had these columns in the way. I had a sense that there was layers of history, and if you dig down, you could learn a lot. Well, we actually happened to be sitting on the exact spot that Edward Gibbon, who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, sat that gave him the inspiration for his big thousand-page book about history of Rome as he was sitting there looking at these ruins and hearing, I, I think it was Christian monks singing in the Temple of Saturn. And he just went, hey, I've got a great idea for a for a book about the history of Rome. Now, he took a thousand pages. We did it in one hour. Uh, but, you know, it, it was a pretty influential book. And, and in a way, you know, Rick, what us sitting there might have been in some ways, part of the inspiration for you and I both to also pursue art 
and be interested in it and ultimately, 50 years later, culminating in doing a TV show about Rome. It's true, 50 years. My goodness. And now what we have, which we didn't have back then, is friends who are local guides all over Europe who can work with us. And Francesca, you've been able to be our connection with a real intimate history of Rome. And in Rome, you always think they're practical. You know, we always like to joke if a Roman tourist came to the United States, they'd want to see a freeway interchange and the Golden Gate Bridge or something engineering-wise. But Rome also had an appreciation of beauty. What would you like the people who are enjoying Rome to understand about Rome's approach to practical infrastructure versus appreciation for beauty? Well, actually, it's, uh, that's a really interesting question. I, I think the, the practical part is, makes them very fascinating and also very relatable because they are city dwellers and problem solvers. They haven't just left us temples and structures for the gods, but structures for people. And so that certainly is part of their intelligence, this practical aspect. But then they, are, I think, are curious uh, and open to the world enough that when they come into contact with the Greeks, they just find the Greek civilization and Greek art irresistible, and they fall in love with it, and they import it, they copy it, they celebrate it. And what, we, what has survived of Greek art in many, many cases is through Roman copies. So I think we should also uh, be aware of this. So maybe because they were such good engineers and technicians, they respected the Greeks who had a different set of priorities from aesthetics and art, and uh, thank goodness they were smart enough to copy what the Greeks did because, Gene, most of the masterpieces are actually Roman copies of Greek originals, aren't they? Yeah, like Francesca said, they just loved the Greeks. They were in awe of the Greeks. They felt culturally superior, even though they conquered them militarily. And they just, they loved the style of Greek art. To them, it was kind of like Americans who used to admire European art as being the high point of civilization and feeling like American art and Americans were inferior culturally. Huh. That's, um, that's a good analogy. And the Romans just, I mean, Francesca, when we're traveling through ancient Rome, we're, we're seeing a lot of how they co-opted other civilizations. Yes, it's it's probably, I mean, it's it's one of the secrets of their success is this ability to assimilate. I mean, also remember that they're the newcomers on the Mediterranean scene. So when they rise, all these other great civilizations, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Etruscans, they've already reached the peak of their civilization. So there's this incredible array of culture that they come into contact with and assimilate, assimilate, assimilate. Assimilate, assimilate, assimilate. We're looking at what we can learn from ancient Rome today on Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined right now by two of my collaborators on the new Rick Steves Art of Europe TV series. Gene Openshaw is the lead writer for the series. He also co-authors the Rick Steves art books, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces and Europe 101. Francesca Caruso is on the line with us from Rome. She's my favorite guide for all things Roman and leads custom tours in the Eternal City. Her website is francescacaruso.com. And Francesca, when we are in Rome, one thing I love is the way that you are very clear about misperceptions that we need to dispel. Uh, you always like to talk about how it's not a forest of white columns, but it was really colorful, and that Romans wouldn't think of going to a museum for art because the art was all over their world anyways. Talk just a little bit about that. Yes, I think this, um, it's really time to let go of this idea that Rome 
was a forest of white marble and that the um, statues were these empty-eyed white ghosts that we see staring into nothing in museums because the statues were painted, for one, and also there was colored marble and frescoes everywhere. So I think we can say this, both the Greeks and the Romans lived in a world full of color. So I almost like the idea of looking at the ruins through a kaleidoscope to bring back this dimension of color, which would have made it much more vivid and interesting. What Francesca said right there humanized ancient Rome 2,000 years old to me a little bit. What is uh, one thing in your travels and in your teaching as a tour guide and travel writer that that you find is a good way to just humanize Roman citizens? Yeah, I think it's I think it's the portrait busts of Roman citizens mm-hmm. that you see. I mean, when you think of the grandeur of Rome and the and the Colosseum and and the Ponte Garden and all that, but what I really like is just looking into the eyes of these busts, these portraits of everyday citizens. And these are the people that built this city. The honest, hardworking members of the Republic, the senators, the uh, the businessmen, and they would have their busts made. And when they had it done, they didn't get it idealized. They showed it wrinkles and warts and all. So you're actually looking at these people, and that gives me a sense of that these are actual people. Gene, uh, what is your thought about how the Roman culture and the Roman civilization survived so well in so many ways, its legacy? Even after Rome fell, it was, it was such a strong and smart culture that it passed on to the, the, the next generations. Like Edward Gibbon, who heard these Christian monks, it's like they were singing in Roman ruins. They were carrying on this singing tradition. In Latin, probably. In Latin, singing the Latin language. And also Rome had given Europe its first taste of a united Europe because they'd conquered the entire continent. And people fell into that. But perhaps the greatest legacy of Rome, I think, is that it inspired you and me to create our TV series. <laughs> <laughs> well, because of that kind of exciting stuff to share, why not? I can't think of a better project. Hey, Francesca, how about you and the, and the legacy of Rome? What, what impresses you about how Rome has, compared to any other of the, um, you know, well, like nobody else, like no other civilization, Rome has had an impact on us today? But I, I wonder if it isn't what we've been saying all along about the practicality. So I think uh, the influence in law, for example, or in fact in, in infrastructure, you think of even how many words we use. Uh, we use in English that are of Latin origin. I mean, the Romans are alive amongst us because of what they've left us in so many different fields. There's probably ways we don't even realize that we're impacted by Roman culture. I'm always sort of inspired by uh, the Renaissance appreciation for ancient Rome. I mean, this is around 1500, and Gene, this is kind of a fun challenge. If you were a Renaissance painter working in Rome around 1500, like Raphael, what would you be most inspired by in what you saw in the ancient excavations. Oh, man, yeah. The past was all around you. And if you were an artist, you saw these people who, were, who felt like they were better artists than you were. So you had, they were your mentors. You had to learn from them. Um, so you'd, dig, you'd excavate a torso. You'd excavate a torso and then copy it because the, the musculature was so, so good that that was your inspiration. Michelangelo, for example, you know, there was this huge uh, statue, that the Farnese Bull, and he helped to reconstruct it when they pulled it out of excavations. Raphael, he helped to the Pantheon, the beautiful domed building in Rome. He helped to renovate that. And they used the symmetry 
and the as uh, as Francesca said, that combination of practicality with a sense of beauty, and that really became what Renaissance art was. The Romans gave Europe its first taste of a common culture and groundbreaking works of art and architecture that continued to inspire through the centuries. We're exploring what ancient Rome has to say to us today with Rome-based tour guide and historian Francesca Caruso and Gene Openshaw. He's the co-author of the Rick Steves Art Books, and he's the lead writer for our just-released TV series, The Art of Europe. It's airing across the country this month on public television. I've had a selfish joy in producing this six-hour miniseries on the story of European art, of being able to take some of my favorite moments and bring them home and, with the help of our crew, fashion them into these really entertaining and inspirational, I think, hours of history and art um, programming. Six hours taking us from Stonehenge all the way up to Picasso and beyond. And I've had a few favorite moments, and I'm just curious for both of you guys, um, of all the stuff we did in Rome, what brought you the most joy to be able to share with our audience, Gene? I would take a place just north of Rome in Ravenna, the churches in Ravenna with these beautiful mosaics. And the reason I picked that is because it shows Rome in its twilight. Just as Rome itself was falling and just as the next generation, the next new era was coming, and it's the perfect combination of this mosaic Roman art with Christian imagery that shows how Rome would carry on into the future. I think in that same church, we see it's the cusp between ancient and medieval culture. You've got the ancient Roman early Christian portrayal of Jesus as a clean-shaven shepherd, and then you've got the classic medieval portrayal of Christ with the beard. And those two portrayals are just steps apart as Europe goes from ancient to medieval. As basilicas become churches, as senators become bishops, as the emperor becomes the pope. And Francesca, if you could answer the same question, because I know you are so passionate about sharing your beloved Rome, what did you, what were you thankful that we could impart with our work uh, as we made our art TV show? Well, we've had over the years several moments in the forum, but the last time we were there to film this uh, new show, maybe because so many years have gone by and I've come to really feel more and more strongly about that place, but I really hope that we can we can encourage uh, everybody to go and see it and to see how in the same place you can have the grandeur, the loss of grandeur. We were looking at ruins after all, but us talking about the art, so something about the present and the future too. So our presence there uh, makes it still, I think, uh, very, very much alive. So to feel these dimensions there at the same time with you is something that I really treasure. And to be able to share that through the, the wonder of public broadcasting, I'm so thankful for. Francesca Caruso and Jean Openshaw, thank both of you so much for your help in the production of our new series. As travelers and as art lovers, uh, we know that, that people across the country will be tuning in to Rick Steves' Art of Europe this season, and your guiding and your experience and your, your love of all things Roman art is going to make the second hour of our series both a great education and a joy to watch. Thanks so much, Francesca, and thanks, Jean. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. It was a joy.
two guides who specialize in the history and art of Greece and Egypt join us next for some further time travels to the ancient world. They help us know what we're really looking at when we find ourselves standing in front of sun-bleached ruins or squinting at antiquities in a museum case. That's in just a minute. And I'll share a memory of the time I got to enjoy a wistful evening of Fado music and grilled sardines at an authentic Lisbon version of a dive bar. It's Travel with Rick Steves. When you travel all the way to the Mediterranean, you're going to have the chance in a lifetime to be just wowed by the antiquities, the wonders of the ancient world. But it takes some skills. It takes some ability to really appreciate what you're looking at. We're joined by Anastasia Gaitanu, who's a guide in Greece from Thessaloniki, and Colin Clement, who's a guide who resides in Alexandria in Egypt. And we're going to talk about sightseeing skills for the ancient world. Colin, Anastasia, thanks for joining us. Thank nice you. To be here. You take travelers around the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, what would be a very important skill to have as a prerequisite for understanding and depreciating some ancient sites? Anastasia? I believe it's very important to forget what you know about today's world. You can't compare different things. We have a different sense of morality. We have different habits. We live in a different world. And also, our, our eye is full of images because we go to the movies, we see television. So we don't many times appreciate what an effect something that we think is normal or common had on someone in ancient times. So if we leave all that prejudice behind, then we can definitely comprehend more and better. It's a good point. I think it's also important to remember that you know, the people of the past are exactly the same as us in terms of mental capacity. Mm-hmm. We're, not, you know, we're not talking about sort of sloping-browed, grunty people. You know, if somehow you could sort of Star Trek-wise beam somebody out of the third century before Christ into our era they and send them to school, they'd just turn out like us. So you, when you stand back and look at all that engineering, which is, you know, all these massive monuments, think, how did they do that? Well, you know. Well, they just got out a piece of papyrus and figured it out. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they knew mathematics. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the technological marvels, because this really is really impressive. When you think of acoustics, they understood acoustics. Absolutely. I mean, you go to, to Epidavros, for example, in, in the Peloponnese. The acoustics of that theater, which was built in the 3rd century before Christ, and the acoustics there are still absolutely excellent to the extent that... In fact, they do concerts now without, without amplification. Absolutely, still use it, yeah. I've stood right there in the center, and you feel like... Man, you can project to the, to, I don't know how many people would be in the theater, how many people would be in Epidavros? 12,000. 12,000 people. We do now know exactly how they thought of it, how they designed it. We know why the acoustics are so good. But what I find very interesting is that this particular marvel impressed people in ancient times as well. So they would travel far and wide and they would get to the theater and they would go, hey, good acoustics. Not just good acoustics, great acoustics. Great acoustics. Let's go to Epidavros. Well, one of Definitely. the earliest, one of the earliest symbols or the earliest icons or images of the lighthouse of Alexandria, which is one of the wonders of the, of the ancient world, was a glass jar that was found just outside of what is now modern Kabul in Afghanistan. It no longer exists. It's unfortunately been destroyed in all the turmoil that Afghanistan's experienced. That, but it was a tourist trinket that someone took home to say to their family you know, see what I saw when I went to Alexandria. That's a very important mindset thing, as Anastasia was saying, to remember these people have never seen a moving image. They've never seen a photograph. Uh, And then just to have a simple carved relief would be something you'd tell your children about. And I find also very interesting that sometimes today, because we're so based and, and dependent on our technology and what we can do, is we can't understand how these people manage to, to build 
all these great constructions. But I think it's very interesting to see how people, for example, in the 5th century BC, could not understand how their ancestors in the 8th century or in the 2nd millennium BC did what they did. Of course, the explanation back then was a lot more easier. You know, giants with one eye, the Cyclops came and did it. I love that. And you're thinking specifically about the palace in Mycenae. For example, And the people would call that uh, Cyclopean architecture just because they couldn't imagine some man carrying those big stones. Exactly. So when you go to Mycenae, I just always think, wow, Mycenaeans were a thousand years before Socrates and Plato. And they would go down there and they would see the remains of this palace and they would see those huge stones, actually, I guess, bigger than what the Greeks were using. And they just shook their head and thought, no human being could do this. Yes, because they did not have the technical technological means that they had, so they could not understand or comprehend how would someone, without having this crane that they had in the 5th century BC, could pull something like that off a thousand years before that. So they attributed to giants. Exactly. Imagine looking at the pyramids in the ancient days. Well, I imagine looking at the pyramids today. I mean, there are still people who insist that the pyramids were built by aliens or outer space or whatever. The, the, the term is pyramidiate. A pyramidiate, a person who refuses to person, believe yeah. humans did this. Yeah, yeah. And then you would respect the fact that they were just as smart as us. They may not have had computers, but they figured it out. They figured it out one way or another. We're still not sure exactly how they did do it, but nonetheless they did but do they it. But they did it. Yeah. The people who were commissioning these monuments in the past were perhaps doing it with the same, for the same reason that people today commission skyscrapers or huge concert halls. I mean, they're, they're works projects which were going to employ you know, keep the economy taken over, and their status symbols. They just are, like today, really. Just like today. You know, the culture is expressing its ambitions through its own constructions. Definitely. We're viewing the ancient world through the eyes and mindset of people from long ago today on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides right now specialize in the history of the eastern Mediterranean. Colin Clement has spent many years working on archaeological projects in Alexandria, Egypt. And Anastasia Gaitanou comes to us from Thessaloniki in Greece. You know, when you when you are trying to understand all of this, it's also very important to get into that that mind frame and understand the mystery of the world. People didn't know what thunder and lightning was. They didn't know why the sun rose every day, and they would explain it with their various religions. And then to understand the art and the architecture, you really need to understand the religions. Well, you need to, to a certain extent, understand the religions because they would use perhaps myth and religion to explain natural phenomena, of which we now have perhaps better scientific explanations. But I didn't mean to say they were sort of cowering and terrified of it all. They Mm -hmm. would rationalize it in the same way we rationalize all sorts of things we don't necessarily understand ourselves. But they were still quite capable. Certainly the ancient Egyptians were obviously very capable of serious, rational, scientific thought. Otherwise, they would not have been able to build the things they built. Well, speaking of rational thought, what about sex? I mean, that must have been a mystery to them. <laughs> Not an awful lot of rational <laughs> thought when it comes to sex, actually. <laughs> and, but said. I mean, when you think of this art, it's all fertility symbols and stuff. And there's so much fertility woven into it. In Greece, you think of the cycladic yes. fertility symbols and so on. Well, most of the fertility symbols were genitals. That's right. true. Uh, nowadays, maybe that would uh, insult our moral feeling, but... Um, Back in the old days, well, of course, they did not go around naked like many times we see the uh, statues in the museums like of naked men and then people think they did not have anything to put on. Of course they did, but there were naked athletic competitions and they did train naked, the naked body of a man, not of a woman. But that was something common, so it was nothing really um, hidden or unknown or dirty or, or, dirty or nothing. And besides, how can you 
get children if you don't have genitals. And how do you how do you survive if you don't procreate? And Mm. if they want to be fertile, maybe they need to worship something to increase their fertility. I think the very earliest statues are fertility statues. Fertility statues. It's also a question: is how how were these worshipped as well? I mean, I think I don't know if people necessarily understand how these fertility symbols would be used. I mean, our notions of worship are are veneration and, and complete belief in, because that's how our religion has evolved. You know, we believe completely in, for example, Christ, if, you know, if we were a Christian, or we believe completely in the teachings of Allah if you were a Muslim. But did these people actually look at those little clay fertility symbols and believe completely that they were the source? Or were they symbols? Were they like perhaps icons in the Orthodox Church? And they oh. would accept them and gather them? And yeah, they were, they were means a- of contemplation. So these are examples of how you can get a sort of an appreciation of the mindset of people to understand the sightseeing you'll be seeing today. Anastasia, when somebody is in Greece, in, in Athens, and going on the Peloponnesian Peninsula or out to the islands, how do you prioritize on your sightseeing so you don't go crazy and try to see too much? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, you definitely have to see the sightseeing, what is mainly known. But I try to see the big sanctuaries of ancient times because they were the place where people would socialize. This was the place where you could come closer to a god. This was the place also for the athletic competitions. It was the place where everybody would meet. And there were four major sites. One was Delphi. Delphi, or the Delphi, Oracle. The Oracle. Second one was Olympia. Okay, where the this, first Olympic Games. Where the first Olympic Games took place. And the last ones in antiquity. And all of them, apart from one. Right. And then there are two more which are not that known. The one is Nemea where it was a sanctuary dedicated to Hercules because that's the place where he had his first dusk. Where is Nemea? Nemea is in the northeast of Peloponnese, not very far from Corinth. Okay. Is there much to see there, actually? Yes, it's quite interesting. There is a beautiful museum where you can see both about everyday life and also about the athletic competitions. A bit more than the half of the stadium is still intact, and you can see it very well, the start line. You can see also the ancient baths there, and uh, there is the American school, archaeological school, digging there and restoring, and now you can see a lot of the columns of the temple restored. And the fourth is Isthmia, that's also not very far from there, and that was a sanctuary dedicated to Poseidon, who was the god of the sea. What is the name again? Isthmia. It's I-S-T-H-M-I-A. Okay. Colin, what would you add to that if you're prioritizing for sites? In Greece. In, In Greece, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, Mycenae, because, you know, Mycenae ties in with Agamemnon and Menelaus, the Trojan War. I mean, it stretches sort of Greek history out of Greece and across the Aegean and up into modern era because we still read these stories. And there's so much to see there. And it is a thousand years before a lot of these other sites. So it is ancient, ancient. It's It's just two hours south of Athens, by the way, so quite accessible. What else? Oh, I'd be tempted to go north, to go to Vergina, to go to Pella, to go to the, the royal sites of Alexander the Great because... If the knowledge of Greece came down to us in the modern era, it's because he spread it outside of mainland Greece into the Hellenistic world from which it then travelled into the modern world. And I think I would add Epidavros for the great theatre. Epidavros for the theatre, perhaps. Of course, the Acropolis in Athens with the Acropolis Museum and Ephesus on the mainland of Turkey, but in ancient Greece. But that's more of a Roman site, isn't it? Well, it it stretches over. I mean, it's difficult to build walls between eras, frankly. History is a continuum. There's so many sites that are just really undervisited in the Holy Land. Go to Jarash as well, outside oh, yeah. of modern Amman and Jordan. I mean, you've got a whole Roman city almost extant with colonnades running along the roads as if it had never fallen down. 
So if I was an ancient tourist, what would be uh, your advice to me, Colin? An ancient tourist? Yeah. Oh, well, clearly, in the, if you're in the common era, if you're in the second century AD, you would get a copy of Pausanias' Travels in Greece. What's his name? Pausanias. 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 P-A-U-S-A-N-I-A-S. He was a Greek who traveled around the ancient world in the second century AD and literally wrote it all up and drew pictures and created plans and all the rest of it. it and is, you can get a, a modern version of it that. It still exists. You can get Pausanias' Travels. On Travel with Rick Steves today, our guests are expert guides from the Eastern Mediterranean. Colin Clement joins us from Alexandria in Egypt, and Anastasia Gaitanou comes to us from Thessaloniki in Greece. Anastasia, if you're going to take me to one, I know there's, it's a ridiculous question, but <laughs> take me to one place where I can really just go, wow, I'm so glad I traveled all the way to Greece to check this out. That's a very difficult question, that's true. But I would choose one site that maybe is not that known, and that would be in the north of Greece, and that would be Vergina. It is there where the first capital of the ancient Macedonian kingdom used to be. But in the 70s, the grave or the tomb of Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great, was found, and the most uh, important thing, unlooted. Unlooted, wow. Not just one tomb, it was under a funerary hill. There were four graves there, two unlooted, uh, two looted. And where did all the treasures of that unlooted tomb end up? That's the most interesting part of all. It's exactly there where it was found. So you can go in and you can see the actual grave, not a replica, not a copy, it's the actual grave, and you can see also wonderfully done exhibition in front of those graves with all the artifacts that were found inside. What is the name of this site again? The name of the site is Vergina. It's a V-E-R-G-I-N-A. Vergina, and that's in northern Greece. That's in northern Greece. And it's a Macedonian royal tomb. Exactly. Wow, I'm putting that on my list. Colin, if you had a one wish as a tourist today to get a sense of the grandeur of the ancient world, where would you take me? Oh, how ancient are we allowed to be, Rick? You can go as ancient as you like. I would take you to Egypt where I live, and I would take you down to Luxor. It's greatly visited, but it blows me away every time to walk into the hypostyle hall, the big columned hall of Karnak Temple just north of Luxor. Mm. It is just, uh, it's outstanding. It's almost inhuman. And it, it, is. It, it To be honest, it makes... The Parthenon seems sort of small and insignificant and just a pile of rubble when you walk in there. It blows you away. It's a forest of huge sequoia-type columns, yep, very close together, so yeah. you can almost not see the room. Yeah. But you walk into there and you just go, my goodness. Yes. What century was that from? Oh, it goes back until, what, about at least the 17th century before. All right, so 1,500 years but before the Acropolis. But it was active for a long, long time. So, Colin, that's a good reminder to me that we can go ancient to Greece and then we can go ancient again back to Egypt and most importantly, to be prepared to understand the wonders of those civilizations. Colin Clement, Anastasia Gaitanu, thank you very much for helping us out. You're welcome. Thank Thank you. you. Sometimes you can experience an authentic bit of the old world in your travels, if you know where to look. Here's what it was like for me to attend a Fado performance in a well-weathered club in Lisbon, Portugal. It's from the travel memoirs I've written up in my book called For the Love of Europe. Fado. The Lisbon Blues. It's after dark in Lisbon's ramshackle Alfama neighborhood. Old-timers gather in restaurants which serve little more than grilled sardines to hear and sing Portugal's mournful fado, traditional ballads of lament. I grab the last chair in a tiny place next to two bearded men hunched over their mandolins lost in their music. A bald singer croons, looking like an old turtle without a shell. 
there's not a complete set of teeth in the entire house. A spry grandma does a little jive, balancing a wine bottle on her head. The kitchen staff peers from a steaming hole in the wall, backlit by their flaming grill. The waiter sets a plate of fish and a pitcher of cheap cask wine on my table and, like a Portuguese Ed Sullivan, proudly introduces the next singer, a woman who's been singing here for more than 50 years. She's the star, blood-red lipstick, big hair, a morning shawl over her black dress. Towering above me, flanked by those mandolins, she's a fusion of moods, old and young, both sad and sexy. Her revealing neckline promises there's life after death. I can smell her breath as she drowns out the sizzle of sardines with her plush voice. The man next to me whispers in my ear a rough English translation of the words she sings. It's a quintessential fado theme of lost sailors and sad widows. O waves of the salty sea, where do you get your salt? From the tears shed by the women in black on the sad shores of Portugal. Suddenly, it's surround sound as diners burst into song joining the chorus. Fado is the folk music of Lisbon's rustic neighborhoods, so accessible to anyone willing to be out late and stroll the back streets. Since the mid-1800s, it's been the Lisbon blues, mournfully beautiful and haunting ballads about long-gone sailors, broken hearts, and bittersweet romance. Fado means fate. How fate deals with Portugal's adventures and the families they left behind. The lyrics reflect the pining for a loved one across the water, hopes for a future reunion, remembrances of a rosy past, or dreams of a better future. It's the yearning for what might have been if fate had not intervened. While generally sad, fado can also be jaunty in a nostalgic way. The songs are often in a minor key, The singer is accompanied by stringed instruments, including a 12-string Portuguese guitar. It's a guitar with a round body, like a mandolin, or, as the man whispering in my ear said, like a woman. Fado singers typically crescendo into the first word of a verse, like the moan emerging from deep inside. Though the songs are often sorrowful, the singers rarely overreact, They plant themselves firmly and sing stoically in the face of fate. After thanking the man who translated the songs for me, I leave the bar late that night feeling oddly uplifted. An evening seasoned with the tears of black-clad widows reminds me that life, even salty with sadness, is worth embracing. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Casmora Hall, and Donna Bardsley. You can find out more about our guests, search the show archives, and listen again anytime you like. Look on our website, ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.